I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Today I have a really amazing guest, somebody whose work brings a proper scientific rigor to the pursuit of performance and health, Dr. Eric Coram. He's an applied performance scientist. He's going to share his wisdom on topics that range from managing stress to unlock better physical performance to the intricacies of your brain's own detoxification system. So whether you're a cyclist who's looking to boost your adaptive capacity or someone who's simply focused on living a longer, happier, healthier life, today's episode is going to offer a roadmap of useful and scientifically backed insights. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. And there was a study done by the British Psychological Society that showed that greater social connectedness during lockdown periods was associated with less worry, fatigue, lower perceived levels of stress. Essentially, staying connected to people created a buffer to poor mental and physical health outcomes. One meaningful conversation per day significantly boosted somebody's mood, lowered their stress, enhanced social connectedness. But here was the interesting thing. Digital communications like text messages or DMs on social media did not have the same outcome. There's been this steady incline of neurodegenerative diseases, and there's been this steady decline in the average amount of sleep that somebody gets every night. Are these things related? I'm pretty sure they are. Before we get into today's episode, I have some exciting news to share with you. It's been a game changer recently for me, making a marked difference in my performance, especially when it comes to my sleep. Let me introduce you to Pillar. Pillar is a company that's on a mission to fuse pharmaceutical precision with sports supplementation for athletes just like us. Okay, so we're all familiar with electrolytes and carbohydrates in our race preparation, but Pillar's taking a different route. It's focusing on something called micronutrition. It ensures you're ready to perform even before you hit the start line. It's all about promoting a good night's sleep. It's facilitating effective recovery and replenishing those critical micronutrients so you can perform at your best. Over the past month, I've been incorporating Pillar's triple magnesium into my routine. Every night, I take it 30 minutes before bed, and I've seen a remarkable improvement in my sleep quality. You'll know that I'm back using a Whoop device tracking my sleep, and the results of that improvement are there in black and white. I've had about a 10% bump in my restorative sleep since I started taking Pillar. I'm waking up, feeling refreshed every morning, ready to attack work, podcast, training, and just the next day in general. But don't just take my word for this. Try it, and let the data on your fitness tracker tell you the story. So if you're ready to elevate your performance and your sleep quality, why not give Pillar a try? Head over to pillarperformance.shop and use the code ROADMAN on your local website for 15% off your first order. Or for US listeners, head over to thefeed.com forward slash pillar and use the code ROADMAN for the same 15% off your first order. The details of both of these are in today's show notes. Now let's get into the show. Dr. Eric, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thank you for having me. This is this is a pleasure. No, it's really cool to have you. I feel like the audience are going to leave with some tangible benefits today. And that's my hesitancy sometimes with these sprawling long-form conversations I have that I wonder after, it's like, what did the audience leave with? But I'm pretty confident <laughs> on this one. They're going to have some tangible advice to put them in a happier and healthier place. Well, let's let's do it then. Let's give them some tactical stuff. 
So you talk a lot about your five pillars for disease prevention and often overlooked in that is community. Can Mm. you elaborate a little bit on how living in a community contributes to overall well-being? Yeah, so just big, big picture here. We talk about those five pillars of what we call building adaptive capacity because what causes disease state is the inability to adapt to some type of stressor, right? Whether that's a disease state, your body can't adapt and fight and overcome. Um, And so the more capacity to stress you have, your system can adapt instead of moving into a state of maladaptation, which leads to sickness, illness, and eventually death. So the five pillars are sleep, exercise, mental fitness, nutrition, and community or healthy relationships. And so my background is in, in human performance, but I got a PhD. So when you go through that process of jumping through all the hoops and learning how research works. During the pandemic, I sat back and was like, oh my goodness, this is a really rough time for the rest of the world. But what's going to happen out of this is we're going to, a bunch of research is going to tumble out about the impact of isolation. And there was a study done by the British Psychological Society that showed that greater social connectedness during lockdown periods was associated with less worry, fatigue, lower perceived levels of stress, essentially staying connected to people created a buffer to poor mental and physical health outcomes. Why is this? Well, when you feel like you're isolated and you're all alone, you have nobody else to, I would say, carry your burdens or to shoulder the load, then you're taking on all that stress, right? But when you're living in community and you have healthy relationships, not only can you communicate what's on your heart, what's holding you down, but also there's this support mechanism. Now, the, the actual like what's happening beneath the hood physiologically, still kind of hard to understand what leads to what. But um, we know that there was actually a study done with 5,400 people over 18 years of people that were involved in faith communities. Didn't talk about what faith. It was just a faith community, right? And over that 18 years, these people had a lower, what's called allostatic load. So anytime you experience stress, there's like load that comes with that. There's a cost to adapting to that stress. You go out and cycle for 25 miles or 50 miles, whatever it be. That's an external load of stress. The body then has to adapt to that stress. People that were involved in a connected faith community had lower allostatic load. So they were able, the stress, the cost of stress was lower. It was a 55% reduction in all-cause mortality and controlling for socioeconomic, sociodemographic factors, clinical factors, laboratory factors. Like people were just able to adapt to stress better. So if you kind of deconstruct what does a faith community have, it has consistent engagement around something that's very deep. There was a paper that came out, oh, several months ago from the University of Kansas that showed that one meaningful conversation per day significantly boosted somebody's mood, lowered their stress, and enhanced social connectedness. And that can be just, you know, it was like engaging with somebody with the intention of listening, joking around, catching up, having a conversation like this, right? But here was the interesting thing. Digital communications like text messages or DMs on social media did not have the same outcome. I guess for me, it's like, because you need to listen to respond in the in-person communications where you can be 
passive mm. with it. But even just to, to pull it thread and pick up on one of your points there, you mentioned the pandemic and the effect of social isolation there. Obviously, you were out the far side of that and lockdowns and stuff are thankfully finished. But I was having a really interesting conversation with a friend the other day around interest rates. Global interest rates are really high at the moment. And the effect of that is there's less of my generation, the sort of 30 to 45-year-olds that are homeowners. I was like, well, what's that got to do with anything? But the World Health Organization has predicted the biggest killer in the next decade is not going to be any disease or the next pandemic. It's going to be loneliness. Now, how those two are connected, because when you're a renter as opposed to a homeowner, you're less engaged in the community. You're less likely to know your neighbor. You're less Mm. likely to help out at a community center. I was like, we are out the far side of the existential crisis that is the pandemic. But the long tail effect of the interest rates, because of all the fiscal easing during the pandemic, are really going to affect social isolation for a long time to come. That is a very astute observation. I just made a note about that. That is, I hadn't thought about that. Now, I'm I'm renting where I'm at right now, but I'm in a community I don't plan to leave. It's just too expensive to buy. We had we moved across the country like towards the end of the pandemic and it was just like, couldn't do anything about it. But it makes total sense. You need to be invested in friends and close relationships. And our digital devices are making it harder <laughs> to do this. In some ways, they they kept us connected during the pandemic. But I remember, I just remember like, there got to be a certain point where I was like, I just want to hang out with my neighbors. Yeah. And even though I had my family, it still was an incredible struggle. And, and the thing is, is, you know, with our devices are, they're driving a wedge between us and other people if we don't take control of them. But how can somebody intentionally foster community now? Because I'm thinking about our typical podcast listeners, conflicting demands on their time and, even myself, growing the podcasts, and probably more appropriately, as I was trying to become a professional cyclist, pro sport, there's nothing healthy about it. There's No one gets to the top of their sport by balance. For me, I became a runaway train, and it was running away and causing havoc with personal relationships, friendships, romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. Anything that wasn't going to make me faster on the bike just fell by the wayside, and that relationship atrophied. And that's true for some people building careers. I know I have friends who are investment bankers and, you know, they've no connection with family. So I always pose the question to someone, whether it's an elite athlete who wins a gold medal or the young business owner who scales his company and eventually sells it. Like, is it success if you get that exit or you get that gold medal and you have no one to share that moment with if you've lost all your connection along the way? No, I don't think so. So I was in team sport for 16 years, the NFL, college football. Now, within that locker room, there was connection. And a lot of the guys that I know that, in, you know, even played at the high, that I worked with in the NFL, the, the biggest thing they struggled with is when the NFL was no longer there, they no longer had that connection to the locker room. So for team sport, I think there's a little bit different dynamic. But um, I also saw, though, that the coaching staff, they were disconnected from their families. Not all of them, but some of them. And I always thought, like, what, what would it be like to climb to the mountaintop, win these championships, and then you retire and nobody loves you and there's nobody there for you? You, you love the game more than you loved your family. And so I think, I mean, look, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a father of three. 
And it is something that I have to, to deliberately do. I have to deliberately take time and be like, I am going to, for me, I, I go to church on Sunday. I'm going to see one of my neighbors. He's like, he also works from home. We're like the other day, we're like, dude, you're home for lunch. I'm home for lunch. Why don't once a week, <laughs> we just get together for lunch. And so guess what? He walked over to the house with his sandwich and we had lunch. Like you just have to make it a priority. It's like fitness is important, right? It's just one of the pillars. We can over index on that, but you have to make it a priority. And then you got to put it in your calendar and you got to schedule it. I mean, I really think for people like us that are A-types, that are working really hard, that are driven towards a goal, to make sure that we get into things that are that are not the most natural things that we gravitate towards, we got to schedule it and we got to have accountability for it. So if somebody is in that hole right now where they are feeling socially isolated, is that the best advice you think for them to move forward? I think you need to start with what the closest and most comfortable relationship is. So my brother is a filmmaker. He's made some really big films. As a matter of fact, one of his movies is coming out this October on Paramount Plus, uh, Millie Vanilli. Oh, I'm going to check that out. Huge, yeah, huge movie. I was actually at the premiere at Tribeca. It was amazing. Got to meet Fab. It was wild. But he's a filmmaker. Very isolating experience at times. And he and I will call each other like in these difficult times where it's like, I'm building, he's building, you feel all alone. You got to think about who's that one person. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend that you can just like, sometimes you got to be the initiator and just be like, I need to talk for 15 minutes. Can we talk? Can, can I talk to you once a week for 20 minutes? You know what I'm saying? And you know, if it, if it starts with an online community that then you can make it IRL in real life, then maybe that's how it begins but it's dangerous. That can be a very slippery slope. My new kind of mantra at the moment, I had a Paralympian who lost his eyesight at 18. He was an amazing athlete playing pro sport in Ireland. Lost his eyesight when, you know, he, the world at his feet. And he turned to alcohol, as so many tragic Irish stories do, as a coping mechanism. So I was asking him, how do you go from alcoholic blind, hopeless in a small community to the amazing life he's built now as an after-dinner speaker, a Paralympian. He's just about to embark on this crazy ultra-distance run for 700 kilometers. And he came back with some brilliant advice. He said, first slowly, then suddenly. And I've just taken so much time to think about what that means. And it applies in just so many different areas of your life. And as you're speaking, I'm just applying it to this idea for myself at the moment. How do you get reconnected with your community? You just take a small step. You're not going to become, mm. you know, the, the center of the community. You're not going to be chairman of the local, you know, residence <laughs> group tomorrow. But like, you know, can you go and help your neighbor collect some leaves? Yes. You'd be shocked if you just said hi to somebody. If they're walking down the street and you just smile at them and say hello. Or neighbors, I walk first thing in the morning at 5.30 in the morning. I, don't, I just get up and I walk out the door. I put a weighted vest on. And there's a lot of things that happen on my walk in the morning. I'm not like one of these 4 a.m. grinders and crazy morning routines. It's just what I do, right? But I see almost the same people every morning walking. And guess what? Now we see each other and we're like, hey, how you doing? And we kind, we're starting to have conversation. Community is all around you. You just may have to be the first person to take a step. People are dying inside. They are searching for connection. I've read a little bit on the blue zones and community is one of the areas in the blue zones, which they really feel links the, these areas where people live 
beyond 100 years of age. But I'm curious, how did you deconstruct those other five areas or why did you arrive at them as your pillars? Yeah, the, the scientific literature is pretty clear that those things help us, number one, adapt to stress. I'm going to zoom back even more. In my career uh, as a sports scientist, I was working with elite athletes and we were tracking them. So I was one of the first sports scientists here in the US. So we're using tracking devices on athletes and we're like trying to quantify what was happening in American football. Nobody had ever done that before. And then once we were able to quantify the game, then I was like, okay, that's what they did. Now I want to understand how they're responding to it biologically. There's external load and internal load, what you did and how you responded to it. And what we started seeing is we were measuring things like heart rate variability and direct current potential, the brain, all this different stuff. And we noticed that the best in the world were amazing at adapting to stress, physical and psychological stress. You would just pound them and the next day they would rebound. So I was working with gold medalist sprinters in the Olympics. Uh, Veronica Campbell-Brown was one of them, a lot of them in the Jamaican system. And whether they were an NFL football player, an elite college football player or a gold medalist Olympian, they all had the same signature. They could adapt very fast. So I'm like, okay, what are the drivers for adaptation? So I started working backwards, right? Sleep. Research is very clear on that. Exercise improves. There's a crossover effect, physical and psychological. Sleep, stress, nutrition, social connectedness, and then mental fitness. And all of those five things built the capacity for more adaptability to stress. The literature is also clear. If you do these things at a specific threshold, it improves longevity. So for instance, we know that if you exercise 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week and do two total body strengthening sessions, you lower all-cause mortality by 47%. Why is that? You're more adaptable to physical stress. And there's also a crossover effect. Same thing with sleep. We can kind of benchmark these things. I'm like, okay. So if people engage with these things, guess what? They're more adaptable to stress. They're going to live longer. It was kind of, I just worked my way backwards. I saw this, this trait and then I was like, how do we build it? And so for, I don't know, 15 years while I was doing that, I was always looking, okay, what are the, what are the pillars that we need to build out and foster and build into these athletes so they could be more robust, train more, to be better at their sport. And now it's like, how do I apply this to the general population? But it's all the same thing. So what's the minimum effective dose on community engagement? Man, so like this, that's a, that is a really great question. So this Kansas paper shows like one meaningful conversation per day. Let's think about what one meaningful conversation would look like. If you have a spouse, maybe it's before you go to bed, you actually take the time to be like, how was your day? And you go back and forth for 15 to 20 minutes. Like, do you really do that every day with somebody? Probably not. Even if you're married, uh, there's days where I've got three kids. She goes to bed. I go to bed. And like three days go by and you're like, man, I'm freaking lonely. <laughs> like one convert, because you, be you can be a butler and a housemaid sharing closet space and really not have a relationship. And, you know, even to just pull out the thread of that before you continue, I think that's a super important point because... We are in a little bit of an Instagram culture where you see highlight moments where people feel like they can paper over 
months of bad interactions by one trip to Paris or one big gesture on a birthday or a holiday period. When in essence, that doesn't mean fuck all. It's the hundreds of tiny interactions you have each day. It's how you greet each other in the kitchen in the morning. It's how you greet each other when you open the door or when you answer the phone. That's what's actually meaningful. Yeah, I tell my wife, like, you know, people have these love languages, you know. Uh, You've heard of the five love languages. One of mine is physical touch. My wife's is not. Meaningful conversation for her and like acts of service are really important. So like I told her, I'm like, Haley. That's her name. I need like 30 second hug every day. Like <laughs> I need like an embrace. I don't know. I, that's what I need. I need an embrace. For her, like when she talks to me, I need to be engaged and listening. For my kids, each one of them is a little bit different. Like one of my sons is like, he's a daddy's kid, right? He needs me to do something with him. The other one just to sit down and ask him questions. So you got to figure out what's going to fill your tank on that meaningful moment. But it's got to be more than a moment. It's got to be, I would say, it's hard to do research, uh, you know, randomized control trials on, we're going to give somebody a 10-minute conversation versus a 15-minute conversation. But at least once a day, you need to have a connected moment. And if it's averaged out seven times over the week, I think you're, you're doing pretty good. Winter is on the way, and as the dark and cold days close in on us, we're all beginning to think about the next few months of indoor training. Every week I get emails and DMs asking about my dream indoor training setup. I've already got it. For me, the thing that's had the biggest impact on my motivation to train indoors, it's having a Watt bike. There's no faffing around putting bikes onto a trainer. The Watt bike's just there. It's ready when you are. Having it there just removes all those friction points. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff. No more connection issues. It just works every single time when I need it. There's zero setup and it feels exactly like being out on the road. I get to talk to the best riders in the world every week on this podcast. And guess what bike they all recommend? The Watt Bike. We're partnering with Watt Bike to give you 10% off the Watt Bike Adam when you use the code ROADMANTEN at checkout. That's ROADMANTEN check out. If you're considering a dedicated indoor bike heading into the winter, I couldn't recommend this any higher. Details of this offer are below in today's episode description. Let's take a little bit of a left-hand turn for a second. Uh, You've done a lot of research on something I'm not too familiar with at all, the glymatic system and its importance for brain health. Can you explain Firstly, am I pronouncing that right? And secondly, <laughs> what the hell it is and how it works? Yeah, you're talking about the glymphatic system. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's fine. I'm, I'm glad you took a stab at it. So, um, yeah, there's something called the glymphatic system in the brain. So, every part, you have, you've heard of the lymphatic system, right? It's like this system where like fluid will come out of muscles or out of the bloodstream and it's kind of piped through different areas and something gets in. If a lymph node gets infected, that's a really bad thing. So it's kind of this detoxification system that kind of circulates fluid. And our brain does not have a lymphatic system. However, we have found in the past 15 years, the brain has a glymphatic system. And it's these paravascular pathways where at nighttime, cerebrospinal fluid circulates through the brain. And then it flushes out all this metabolic junk, including waste products, Uh, that are associated with neurodegenerative diseases like um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And these uh, proteins that are 
uh, amyloid betas, tau proteins are flushed out during sleep. So what we've learned is there's been this steady incline of neurodegenerative diseases, and there's been this steady decline in the average amount of sleep that somebody gets every night. Is there, are these things related? I'm pretty sure they are. Because if the detoxification system of the brain is only active during sleep, and we're not getting adequate sleep, that means our brains are literally full of crap. And so we're not allowing our brains to flush out all of this junk. And so um, one of the most important things you can do for your brain health is to make sure that you're getting adequate, restful, and fulfilling sleep. And it's, we spoke about you quite astutely caught that I had a whoop bracelet on. Yeah. And I was kind of giving you my, you know, this is my third attempt at wearing whoop. I want to believe in the technology. I really do. But each time I've come back to it, I almost find myself just going, it's still data for the sake of data. Maybe artificial, they've just added the new artificial intelligence coach into it, which is pretty shitty if you haven't had a chance to check it out. But I want it to work and I want it to be prescriptive <laughs> and give me actionable insights. But at the moment, it's just, it's like a data dump and I'm left to deconstruct it myself. But I will say it has made me more aware of my sleep requirements. Mm. And that's been a big positive. So it's probably worth the monthly subscription alone for just getting me into bed an hour earlier at night. If if that's the um, extent of the the information you're getting in, it's making that big of an impact on your life. I would say keep wearing it. But what you've articulated is the problem with all of these wearables. It's just data. And data without actionable information or, or recommendations is completely useless. This was the problem that we ran into early in sports science here in the U.S. I mean, sports science is a more mature form of study in the U.K. and Europe and especially in Australia. But here in the U.S., it's rather new. We can talk about wearables in a minute and the problem with him. But, um, you know, I would say this, too, when it comes to sleep and wearables, do not pay attention to the sleep stages. They are completely inaccurate. Research demonstrate you're, you're basically trying to measure something that requires EEG and measuring eye movement. Their literature shows these are not accurate at all. As a matter of fact, I created a resource on my website. I don't know if you've seen it, but we built this. It's, it, it ranks number one in Google now for accuracy of smartwatches. And I had a, a doctoral student. I was like, listen, this is what I want to do. I want to look. I have no horse in the race. Let's look at all of the available literature for Apple Watch, Aura, Fitbit, Garmin, Whoop, and we add a new device every month. And let's look at the accuracy for things that people care about, heart rate, steps, sleep, caloric burn. And uh, it is like every month we update it with all the literature. Aura is 79% accurate. Some of these others are in the 50 to 60% range. The only thing that these devices are really good for when it comes to sleep is knowing when you went to bed and when you woke up, which is great. Because the only three behaviors that you can actually really impact are duration, onset, and consistency. You can't directly change how much deep sleep you get. It's part of sleep architecture. So I do wish these, these devices wouldn't report on that because it's making people concerned about something they really that's inaccurate. That it's not even you would need polysomnography to be able to accurately demonstrate those things. Can we influence those? Not the, I'm not talking about the readings. I'm talking about the actual deep sleep or restorative sleep. Can we influence those by tweaking our environments, by slightly tweaking more plants in the room, more ventilation, cooler sleeping environments? Yeah, you can impact um, sleep hygiene. 
So for instance, the number one thing you need to control for is light because I'm sure everybody understands there's two drivers for sleep. There's a homeostatic drive, which means that when you wake up in the morning, you should feel refreshed. And as the day goes on, there's a biochemical increase of something called adenosine, which causes you to be more sleepy. The second thing is a circadian drive. And circadian means about 24 hours. And the primary drivers for your circadian clock or anchors or, or zeitgebers are called are light, temperature, humidity, food, and movement. The primary zeitgeber or time giver is light. So in the morning, I know you're in a part of the world where you don't have a, maybe a lot of, you know, uncovered light from under behind the clouds at, during the day, but you still need to get outside to anchor your circadian clock. I've got that big tube unit buzzing in the morning as well. The big red Say light what? unit. The big tube uh, red light unit first thing in the morning as well. So I'm not sure if you've seen this, uh, J-O-O-V-V. So it's just a big infrared light panel that I literally just stick on when I'm having my morning uh, decaf as it is at the moment because I'm off caffeine. That's awesome. Yeah, I think there's actually, you can actually get some melatonin production from the skin, believe it or not, through those types of light sources. But the primary one is you do need to go outside and get at least 15 to 20 minutes of natural light exposure. But at nighttime, if there's any type of light, if light's an alerting cue in the morning, it's an alerting cue in the evening. So you need to make sure that your room is almost completely dark. There was a paper, I got. I can find it and try to send it back to you, but it was even a hundred lux of light at night, which is like moonlight coming into your room, can keep you from getting into deeper sleep and it can negatively impact blood glucose regulation. Yeah, I've seen a wild one from Sweden as well on the exact same topic with a very low luminescence value and the effect it had on depression levels if you're exposed to it every night. I couldn't believe the links between it. It's crazy, man. Um, so we need to make our rooms cold, dark, and quiet like a cave. That's the way I think about it. Uh, make it as dark as you can. Keep your room temperature cool, 60 to 69 degrees. And then quiet or a consistent tone if you live in a big city. Caffeine intake, you know, probably don't want to consume much caffeine after 2 o'clock. Some people that are very sensitive, maybe even noon. And then, it, you know, the light from your cell phone is bad. But the more damning thing is that when you watch these social media reels at night, it's emotionally stimulating. So if you've ever been tired and like before you go to bed, ah, I just want to check one thing. And next thing you know, you're just completely wired by something you saw. Doom scrolling. Yeah, that's a problem. And now you're like, oh, crap, I can't go back to sleep. So yes, there are environmental things that we can control to help us get into more of a restful state of sleep. But, you know, we sleep in these 90 to 120 minute cycles of sleep. Early in sleep, you have more non-REM sleep and slow wave sleep makes a part of that or deep sleep. As the evening progresses, more of these, these cycles of sleep have less non-REM and more REM sleep. And so can you control that? No, that's sleep architecture. The body does this for a very specific reason for different hormones that are released. It uh, impacts the brain in different ways. And so people are indexing on the wrong things. And it's because I believe a lot of these wearable companies are putting this stuff out. I had Dr. Kathy Goldstein on my podcast. She's, look her up. She's at the, she'd be a great guest for your show. She's at the University of Michigan Sleep Disorder Clinic. And she's like, Eric, none of these devices are accurate. The things that you should think about are duration, 
onset, and consistency. Across the board, those will have the biggest impact. So how can somebody differentiate between real science and bro science or junk science? Man, I love your questions. Um, You need to highly scrutinize the resource, the source that you're getting it from. And then I would look into the literature that they're citing. And if they're um, citing, if they're reading these articles in the correct way, Lang Norton has actually put out a great PDF on how to read scientific literature that anybody can read. Uh, I would highly recommend it. You should read this because you're going to start understanding like, what is a meta-analysis? What is a systematic review? What's a controlled trial? What's a randomized controlled trial? Um, Was this done with 10 people? Was this research study done with, my favorite is 20 untrained college males, which essentially means that anything you do is going to work. So (laughs) is there a ton of information? Is there a dearth of information? So I personally really double check, you know, like somebody says, I have certain people that I listen to and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I love the fact that they're willing and able to sometimes go back and correct themselves. Sometimes I'll put something out and I'll be like, you know what, upon further examination, I should have probably said it this way. I really like that about somebody. Somebody that can be truthful and honest and be willing to be like, you know what, maybe I didn't look at that the right way. I often say to plagiarize an Irish uh, poet, I have strong opinions held very loosely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, th- I think that's, that's really important. You know, there's some great content on YouTube. There's great content on Twitter. That's how I found you. I saw a discussion you were having on heart rate variability. And, you know, even on that, you can you can curate, like we often hear that saying, like you are who the five people you spend your time with. But you can apply that into your digital spheres as well. Like mm. I have zero tolerance on Twitter for, I'm not shouting at a stranger on Twitter trying to change his mind on something. If somebody's coming <laughs> along with negativity, I'm just like, that's not why I'm on the platform. I curate my feed very specifically to get voices that I respect and wake up and when I check Twitter, it's an uplifting platform where I'm learning, I'm being motivated, I'm getting educated, or I'm laughing, but I'm not getting pulled into a spot there. Yeah, I think like one of the one of the platforms I've been going on recently is Reddit, and it can get a little nasty sometimes. So you got to be really careful. But yeah, Twitter can be an or X, whatever it's called now, it can be a wonderful resource. But I would say everybody, including anything I said today. You should, you know, if something stuck out, you're like, oh, I don't know about that. Well, go go look it up. You know, Google Scholar is a real thing. And you can go curate some articles and go take a look at them and take a deeper dive. Something I'd love to get your opinion on. Uh, in cycling, we are obsessed with periodization. So mm-hmm. a typical periodization block for a cyclist looks like week one, we set a baseline. Week two, we build on that. Week three, we build on week two. Week four, it's a bit of a decompression block. Now, that's the historical structure of how we should build a session. But I found for working athletes and the listeners to this podcast, what often ends up happening is you go week one, week two, and then something happens in week three where like the boss throws a work project at them and they don't get the biggest week of that block in. And now week four is a scheduled decompression week. And it's like, I don't even know where to start again. I've heard you talking about a system called fluid periodization based on physiological assessments. Deconstruct that for me and tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, so Tudor Bompa is probably like, you know, the person that really well known for introducing periodization. 
um, the idea behind it is great, right? So I worked with world-class athletes. We would create a quadrennial cycle or, you know, we have my, you know, we're going to look at the next six weeks or we even broke them down into blocks of time. But here's the thing. You're competing for adaptive reserves. So you don't just train in isolation, meaning you don't just work out and everything else in your life is geared towards adapting to that stress, right? So if you work a job, you got work stress. If you got family, you got family stress. You could have financial stress. And guess what? It's all sucking from the same adaptive reserves. So what you need is a system that adapts to how your body is adapting. So yes, you do want to have a general understanding of we're going to be building volume and intensity over time. But especially if you've been training for more than three to five years, these structured blocks or these structured periodized training you know, cycles for the average person, I think are a waste of time because nothing is going to work out like you want it to. So rather, if you can understand how adaptable you are to stress today, then you can have the workout that was planned and you can manipulate it. Oh my gosh, windows wide open. I slept great this past weekend. I ate food. I was connected to the community. I woke up and I am adaptable to stress today. I need to go 25% harder than I did before. Guess what? Last night, my kid was sick. I didn't sleep. Got in an argument with my spouse or a friend of mine. That's pulling from my adaptation reserves. Maybe I'm going to hop on the bike today, but instead of doing a 60-mile ride and we're going to be doing certain intervals in this ride or whatever, maybe I'm just going to drop the volume by 30% and go in a lower zone and work on aerobic capacity, stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. You see what I'm saying here? It's super interesting. I had Joe Friel. He was like the godfather of cycling coaching on it. And he's 80 now. And he was talking to me about the new way he thinks coaches should be coaching. And he started playing around with some of the athletes he's worked at. He says, here's your six sessions you got to do this week. You decide what order you do them in. And he's observed the results of that. And he said, it's phenomenal because they're choosing to do sprint workouts on the days they're freshest. They're choosing to do recovery workouts on the day as their tiredest. And he said the adaption from this is just multitudes better than it is with being overly prescriptive. Yeah, we actually have research. So Dr. Chris Morris, who's on the team at AIM7, we did this with college football players in the SEC, which is like the best college conference or one of the two best or whatever. I don't want to get in that argument. But anyways, <laughs> what we did was we had a regular off-season training program. And we had you know workouts for every single position. And then what happens, we're like, all right, if you want to opt into this, what's going to happen is, is we're going to measure heart rate variability and a host of other things every day. It took them three minutes. And then we're going to adjust your training program today based off of how adaptable you are. I think the off-season program was eight weeks long. At the end of the eight weeks, roughly half the team had opted in. And these weren't all starters or people that weren't. It was a very good blend of people. So lots of different genetic capabilities mixed in there. The athletes that used an adaptable system versus the one that didn't had anywhere between 54% and 592% improvement over their counterparts that were doing the same workout right next to them. And these were things like peak vertical power, horizontal power, aerobic capacity, lean body mass. And the the commonality amongst the people that had better results is they did 10% less work. But you know what? The, I wonder about this. So I still, behind the podcast, coach some athletes. 
And yeah. I know a group of my athletes who this will work super well for. They're really high achievers. They're super uh-huh. motivated to excel in their sport. But there's another cohort and they use coaching for its accountability. So if you mm-hmm. have a session for them scheduled on a Tuesday, they'll go and they'll execute it on the Tuesday. But I feel like if they had the flexibility to determine what sessions to do when, they'll push all their harder workouts further into the week. And then they'll have a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday with all their intensity back to back just because there's a front-loaded laziness built into their psyche. And Now, okay, I, I wouldn't build it that way. I would have a structure for the week. So for instance, you don't want to have back-to-back super high intensity days. Let's say you were doing something that was truly taxing to the central nervous system. You're going to need at least 48 hours recovery, right? So you could have your structure set up where it's undulating, but you could be like, okay, Monday was supposed to be this X type of workout with a specific type of quality, physical, physiological quality that you were stressing. The system is more ready than normal. Let's push it. Okay. So you might be doing two extra reps or whatever. 10% more volume or whatever. Yeah. And then you could have very simple heuristics and rules of thumb. Okay. The next day was more of a, you know, long, slow zonal type of deal where you're looking at like cardiac output training. Well, that, that's very low intensive on the system, but maybe you had two hours of writing in there. And that day they're less adaptive. So you drop it by 20%. They're still going to get the adaptive stimulus, but it's not going to be costing them as much. And now you kind of know where the system's at. You know how to target recovery. So what criteria would you use for determining whether to push them or hold them back? You mentioned heart rate variability. Is there anything else on top of that? Yeah. So this is what I've done. This is what I do now with AIM-7. We have built this in using wearable devices. Oh, I fucking teed that one up well for you, didn't I? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you knew that. Uh, <laughs> no, I had an idea. Yeah, so we we take wearable data, but here's the key. Uh, I'm not, I can't give you all the secret sauce, but I will say it's a measure of objective data. So like heart rate variability, resting heart rate, exercise history, all that type of stuff. All right, let me, okay, so there's objective and then there's subjective measures. How you feel, that's very critical. So there's internal and external training load, what you did, how your body responded to it. And then you need to have objective and subjective measures for those. The subjective part is the reason why Whoop and all these other devices, it's like, oh, you wake up in the morning and says, you feel like a 90 today. You're like, no, I feel like garbage. Thank you very much. You turn the device off. I'm wearing a Whoop right now and I have an aura <laughs> ring on. And so the research demonstrates that a wearable data is a lagging indicator. It's objective lagging indicator. It can be behind. Where when I was a sports scientist, we used to be like, huh, I wonder if my athletes are stressed. We'd take salivary cortisol. I wonder if my athletes are sore. We'd take creatine kinase, blah, 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 blah. Then we realized, you know what? If I just ask them and then we do the right math on the back end, we realized that guess what? It's directly related to how their body was adapting to stress. And there's literature on this. It's one of the first things I learned as an athlete when I started structured training was filling out like yeah. a morning report. Like yeah. on a scale of one to five, how motivated do you feel to train today? How fresh do you feel today? How explosive do you feel today? It'd be like a series of 10 questions. And it's in Joe Friel's Cyclist Training Bible. I literally photocopied old school. Remember you used to <laughs> photocopy stuff back in the day? Took it from the library, photocopied yeah. it, made ring binders with this and every day. And I still say to athletes that are using wearables, like, give me a morning report. Tell me how you felt. 
like because that's so important. So we call that a calibration. We built that in. So the first thing they do in the morning, about 60 to 90 minutes after you wake up, when you really kind of know how you feel, right? They go in and they're like, okay, sleep, soreness, mood, motivation, a couple different things. We give them a one to 10. They slide it across. We anchor on, on extremes, like motivation, crazy motivated today. I don't want to do anything. And then we do some math on the back end. So we, you know, we capture HRV in the morning because that's really important. That it's done in a consistent way. So if you have an Apple Watch, do not use the HRV from the Apple Watch. We actually, in our tech, we have people put their finger over their camera lens. And for one minute upon waking, we get HRV. If you have an aura ring or a whoop, it's done. It's the average of your HRV during sleep, which is great. Capture that. Do a calibration after you're alert and kind of know how you're feeling. It's also a great time to just check in with how you feel. And most people never do that. It builds interoception. So now you start really understanding the levers that are being pulled. Like, why do I feel this way? Oh, you know what? My energy level is just a little bit down. Or I'm a little bit sore or my mood is off. And, and then that's a great time if you want to really take it to the next level to maybe journal a couple sentences about why. But then we pull all that data together and we're like, all right, this is how adaptable you are to physical and psychological stress. And then we can make adjustments based off of that. So is it a app? Is it a cloud-based software? How do, I, how do listeners... I don't even care about listeners. How do I get a hold? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, right now we're iOS only. It's an app. It's in the app store. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I just wrote this down. If you guys go to our website, aim7.com, um, and you check out there, use the code ROADMAN, all caps, and I'll let you have your first month for a dollar. But that's it. So you connect your wearable, you wake up in the morning, you do your calibration. AIM7 is going to then give you personalized recommendations for exercise, sleep, and mental fitness. So this is a really cool thing. We move to like direct recommendations. Oh, you're a runner. You want to do some lactic capacity work or you're a cyclist. This is how many intervals. This is how long. Oh, you want to go do a functional strength training session this long, this RPE. We see your mood is off. We'll push you a specific gratitude intervention. You're stressed. We'll send you a specific breathwork tool. So we're moving from... All of this data is useless, folks, unless you turn it into something that changes. Like you have an actionable recommendation that changes an outcome. And we've been able to demonstrate, we put this into private beta in February. And between February and August, we were in private beta. We had over almost 300 people use the product. And in the first 30 days, the average person had double-digit improvements in sleep, energy, mood, motivation, reduction of stress. And we're demonstrating now that those numbers are sticking after 90 days. That's awesome. Because if you know how you're adapting to stress, then you know what levers you need to pull to build the capacity for more. Because the idea is, and you know this, we can't manage stress. What you can do is build the capacity for more. Like nobody could manage COVID. Nobody can manage if you get rear-ended today in your vehicle. What you can do is build the capacity to adapt to more stress at less cost. And that is what our mission is. And we just found a way to, to reach more people through technology. Uh, Eric, I've loved this conversation. Thank you very much for taking the time to spell it all out for me. I'm definitely going to go and check out that app. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.